Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. On this episode, I talk with Unicorn School Counselor, Mr. Brian Coleman, about how to bridge the generation gap by providing essential tips for effective communication with your teenager. It is a life skill to have children, uh, to love them deeply, to want to protect them in every way that you can, and watch them struggle. You have to cope with that discomfort. And coping like at a, on a fundamental level, what we're talking about for parents and guardians is how do you cope with the discomfort of watching your child struggle, knowing that they're making a bad decision, knowing that them learning and growing is so important. How do we normalize failure, not just for the children, but for the adult too? Because that is a skill for everyone involved. Hi, and welcome to The Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It is so great to see your face and hear your voice right now. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> okay, so let's let's catch everybody up a little bit. Um, so we have been working with a um, organization called Responsibility.org for many years now, mm-hmm. and we finally met in person, you and I, in Chicago just a couple weeks ago, and it was just so great to connect with you in real life and just glean from all of your experience and wisdom that you've had working as a school counselor. And so I just wanted to share that with the audience today, whoever's listening, so they can get a little bit of that too. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I mean, shucks, you've gassed me up in such a beautiful way. It was so lovely meeting you and I had so much fun. And yeah, I'm excited to share in any way that you find meaningful. Yes, this is beautiful. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I have a million questions, so we'll see what we get to. <laughs> um, but I wanted to share with everybody first, just a little bit about you. Um, you were named the 2019 National School Counselor of the Year. That is a huge award, a huge accomplishment, right? Um, and you've been working with teens for, I mean, over a decade now, correct? Yeah, about a so decade. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of experience and you're also very good at what you do. So um, I, I just want to you know, congratulate you on that. I mean, I've worked with children almost my whole life in different capacities, different age groups. Um, my earlier work was with teens and it's tough work. And so anyone who's listening out there that's worked with teens um, or who has teens or is about to have a teen in their life, um, it's it's a lot of work, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be scary or bad. I think there's a lot of teenagers that kind of get a bad rap for, you know, being so... Um, emotional maybe, or just so hard to connect with. And so I kind of want to dispel some of those myths today with you, um, you know, and glean, like I said, from some of that experience that you have. Sure. Um, 
So first and foremost, you know, what is one of the best ways that we can reach our tween teen age group um, that that isn't most isn't talked about a lot? You know, a lot of times they'll say find common ground. You know, if they like a certain band, you know, go out there and buy the album and listen to it and, you know, talk about the lyrics, which is which is still a great thing. Right. But what are some things that you've noticed um, that that has helped maybe you connect with some of the teens that you work with? Um, but besides, you know, finding common ground, what are some ways to kind of get in with them? Yeah. Um, and I, I reflect on not only my working relationships with youth, but particularly my working relationships with families and what I've seen in coaching and supporting families. Um, one significant thing is uh, you mentioned it already a little bit, uh, the fear. The fear about uh, I'm not going to be able to connect or I'm not going to be able to understand. Or sometimes you may you may have been told, uh, you can't understand me, go away, you don't get it, right? Right. Uh, I want to first normalize that fear. I think it's appropriate to be afraid. I think it's appropriate uh, to be concerned that you may not get it or you may not know. Um being able to access that fear is, I think, one of the first steps for parents to not shy away from it, to not suppress the reality that um, as we get older, um, it becomes increasingly difficult in some ways to connect or to understand. Or when we're mentioning the bands or the artists that we don't get or we don't know, or the technology that no longer makes sense, right? <laughs> there, are all of these, there are all these really practical pieces that are in some ways foreign or we have limited exposure to. And I don't think we should shy away from that. I think we should own it. Um, there are things that we don't know yet or we don't understand yet. And I think a big piece of um, my advice is around that growth mindset. Uh, you can grow to understand and learn, but it's going to be hard to do if you can't first admit that you don't get it, right? Um, and that was a powerful moment even when I saw you a couple weeks ago um, when we were talking with other parents. It's that it's perfectly normal and okay to admit you don't know um, and to name that for your youth because they know already that there are things you don't know or don't get, right? And I think a lot of parents, um, for a variety of reasons, don't lean into the vulnerability um, and their relationship with their youth. Um, uh, parents often come from a place of things are moving and I love you and I'm a provider for you and I'm a caretaker for you um, and I want uh, what's best for you and I want so much for you. Um, and they sometimes uh, shift away from or lean out of the, well, I don't know, or I'm insecure, or I'm not sure. Um, they do everything but share that with their youth, right? Um, so leaning into that vulnerability, admitting what you don't know, um, and then asking the questions of, though I may not know or understand, um, I want to. Um, and I want your help. I think it's turning the relationship into a collaborative partnership, that there are th there's learning for us to do together. It's not necessary. It doesn't have to be the one-sided uh, teacher guide um, for the parent or guardian. Um, it can be a very collaborative experience where you have things to share based on your experience as a parent and provider, um, and students have uh, so much to share based on their lived experiences. I've seen, in terms of disconnection, one of the most uh, salient ways to disconnect or to create obstacles in that relationship is to assume that you know or to give the, based on my experience, this is what you should do. Like back the back in my day. Parents and guardians love to use the back in my day. <laughs> yeah. or, or the comparison of my experience to your experience and my experience was harder, et cetera. 
don't do that. Um, that is a very quick way to invalidate uh, the experiences of youth. Uh, so come from a place that's come from a place that will help me understand your experience and what does that mean? Or even when we're talking about language, you mentioned um, the example of using bands or music uh, to talk about the lyrics, right? In some ways, we're talking about language, shared language, right? Um, I think that's just as true even in regular daily communication with youth. Um, when they say words that, that we sometimes take for, for granted mean the same thing, um, like uh, healthy relationships or communication or boundaries, like all of these different words, um, let's define those or ask your youth, what does that mean to you? Because the more you can learn about what words and behaviors and imagery mean to them, you're getting some incredible insights um, into how they think, how they see the world, um, and what informs their decision-making. Wow. I, I mean, <laughs> you're already blowing me away <laughs> again um, because of what you just said. And, and and I actually advocate for validation and empathy a lot when I mm -hmm. you know work with the parents that I work with, um, because I think parents invalidate their children, not because they initially mean to, um, it's not done on purpose. I and mean, I think they have good intention, mm -hmm. but I think, like you said, they do it sometimes or they bring up their own experiences because they feel like that's going to help. That's going to say, hey, I was there too, and this is what happened to me. But because they're doing that, like you said, it's taking away from that child's experience and it's not the same. Generations are different and, you know, things have been different. And even if a parent can, I guess, somewhat relate, I don't know what the right word is, but how they feel like they can relate, like, okay, I've been through that. I've been through a breakup, you know, like, you know, if you've been through a breakup before, I mean, they're not that much different than maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, yesterday, a breakup's a breakup, <clears throat> you know, you know what that feels like. Um, but, for you, you knew what that felt yes. like for you. Yes, thank you. You're uh, yes, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get it out right, but yes. And I think that, like I said, parents have good intentions behind that, but then you know they they end up oversharing, like you said, and in the meantime, invalidating that that youth's experiences, right? Yeah, I mean, so, I think it it becomes uh, a little bit about what does it look like to listen. Like how yes. do, how do we attend and listen in meaningful ways? And you know, I feel very lucky that I work in a profession where that was literally part of my master's program. That was something right. that I had to practice on a regular basis. And I do think that's a skill that sometimes we take for granted that we have, or we know, or we understand. I think we all understand what it feels like to be listened to, what it feels like to be heard, what it looks like to be heard. I often ask uh, in groups with parents and adults or even in groups with students, um, who's ever felt, who's ever been in a situation where they felt they weren't being listened to? Okay. Lots of people, most people will raise their hands. Okay. And when you weren't being listened to, what was the other person doing? Right. They were talking over me or they were sharing their experience or assuming that they understood or they weren't paying attention at all. They were barely focused. There are all of these ways that sometimes we think we're showing up in a meaningful way of connection, but actually it's the opposite. And I think it's important for parents and guardians to really, when you say that you want to listen or when you do want to learn, that you create space for that. And often that means not talking, right? Yeah which is really hard. It's a very, so listening hard. is actually a really hard skill to, to learn or to, you know, to even put into practice because I think as, as a parent, you want to be your, your child's expert. You know, you want to have all the answers. You want to be the one that guides them and protects them and shows them the way, right? Through whether it's our own experience or just our own advice. 
Um, but then all of a sudden you, you start losing your child because you start seeing them drift off a little bit and you're off in lecture land mm -hmm. and your child's thinking to myself, when is this going to be over? This is torture. I just want to get out of here. And you feel like, oh, I'm doing this great thing. And I'm being, you know, doing <laughs> this, you know, not know it all, but, you know, for my child and that's not really the route to go. So mm -hmm. um, if you were one of your students, what would you say is something that students or youth want more from their parents? Is it more Ooh. of the same what you were just talking about? Or is there something different that you feel like they might say to you, you know, I wish my parents were more like this, you know, mm -hmm. would it be maybe to be a better listener? Maybe would it be to lecture less or to mm -hmm. give them more autonomy? I don't know. But what would be a couple of things that you think our youth would like from their parents more mm -hmm. so than what we're giving them? Yeah, I, I think developmentally, uh, especially with the, for the population uh, that I work with, teenagers, um, there's certainly the autonomy piece. I think that's something culturally we tend to understand that as youth grow, they want more space, more freedoms. And I believe very much the parents should scaffold uh, that uh, uh, that experience into increased freedom. But I definitely think there's a big piece, and I hear this all the time, I just wish they'd listen. I just wish they'd hear me. Um, I just wish um, they'd ask, ask me about me. And when they ask me, I wish they wouldn't talk. I they wouldn't over talk me or uh, start. I, I think this is not just in relationships between uh, parents and caregivers and youth. I think this is a, a trap that adults just fall into. And I see it all the time when someone shares and your way of affirming what they shared is to connect to a story or experience you've had, right? Right. That is something that I really think, and it's instinctive for a lot of people to just go right into it. I think that's something that I really want people to stop, reflect on the ways they may show up or think they're showing up um, in a way that's about connection. It's the intent versus the impact. The intention is almost always to connect and support, but the impact just simply isn't that. So I do think it has a lot to do with uh, active listening um, and protected time. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time uh, a child or youth said to me that like they just don't have time for me, right? Or they're so busy. Or when I do talk to them, they're distracted, right? Um, or they're dealing with um, one of my siblings. Or there's always something else going on. Um, or even uh, sometimes, especially for my students um, that are more caregiver types themselves or caretaker types, they'll say, oh, I'm just worried about my mom or my parent. Like uh, dad seems so stressed or mom seems so stressed. I don't want to burden them with my problems. It's like, how do we create space um, for youth uh, to struggle? Struggle not in a way that we need to fix or correct, struggle as part of learning and growing as humans. You know, I think it's going to be very difficult for parents and guardians to support that process in their youth if they don't support that process in themselves. And so much of what I talk to parents and guardians about, um, it's about really coaching. We often talk, we, uh, if there are issues or problems with a student, um, we often focus on, well, what does the student need to do differently or what needs to change for them? Just as important as what needs to change in the household? What needs to change in that relationship? What are you modeling and showcasing? And how can you, where are you in your own skill development? And how does that connect to what your child's going through? So I so many directions I can go in right now, but let's go back to scaffolding for a second. For anyone who doesn't know what scaffolding is or how to do it, what would be the best way you would describe that to a parent and when it comes to helping their child be a little more autonomous? Like how would they um, you know, tear that off, you know. Yeah. 
Well, I think a big part of scaffolding is naming uh, your expectations and the accountability, right? How is this going to be progress monitored? So, um, for example, I find uh, particularly for, uh, let's say, freshmen um, with executive functioning skills uh, or uh, uh, issues or concerns around their executive functioning, um, Sometimes, because there's some struggles uh, keeping themselves organized, managing their time, um, sometimes there's uh, related issues with communication and self-advocacy. Um, I see parents that get to high school and think, okay, well, now they're in high school. I need to give them uh, the freedom to talk to their teachers and manage their work. And like, this is their thing now. Um, and I actually push back on that. It's like, well... Freedom is aspirational. Self-advocacy and independence is aspirational. We need to build in that direction. So for now, it's not that I'm asking you to be a helicopter parent or a Velcro parent or swoop in and manage all of these relationships with teachers, but let's start off with, let's say, perhaps an introductory message to all of the teachers, um, asking them to be in touch with you on, on, on a uh, every few weeks or once a month, or let, let's establish a cadence where they see you as a progress monitoring or accountability partner. Great. And then over time, if the uh, child is able to develop those skills and grow into that independence, you can scale back. So it's more about where are we starting in terms of expectations and partnership, and then how do we pull that back over time, assuming that there is an increase in the skills, the desired skills or behaviors. All right. Thank you. I, I just want to make sure that I really wanted to hone in on that particular part, because I think as a parent, sometimes it can be really hard knowing, you know, how much to give and how much to pull back. Right. There's mm -hmm. a very fine line sometimes of wondering, am I am I being a helicopter parent or am I doing too much? My child, am I, you know, because I feel like when we over parent, right, that we almost do our child a disservice because they don't learn how to do some skills on their own. Like if we're mm -hmm. going to write our, their papers for them, if we're going to, mm -hmm. you know, call their friends when they have a problem with a peer at school and we go, we go and call the parents and try and figure it out, they're not going to learn social skills. Right. So there's, there's certain things that I feel like, you know, parents can overstep their boundaries when they overparent and not let their child, like I said, learn from their own mistakes. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's also that fine line, like I said, of not, um, not being there when your child might need you too, right? If you pull back too soon or too much, then your your child's kind of just you know waving their hands in the water, you know, trying mm -hmm. to doggy paddle to the to the um, to the side because they're feeling like they're drowning because they don't have any support. So there's such a fine. I mean, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Do you feel like there's just that fine line of knowing when to parent or, or over parent or not? I do. I do. I, I think there's certainly a line, and it can definitely be fine. And I think a lot. That line really requires some reflection for the parent, a caregiver. Um, I think, and this is, I don't know that parents often give themselves this time to reflect in this way. It's like, where is that line for you? When you talk about struggle or they, uh, a child needs you, what does that look like? How do you know when you're there? Like knowing where that is and naming that for your child. Here is where I, here's where my flags start going off. Here's where I become in, incredibly concerned to the point that I feel like I must act and figure out is that line for you in the same place where it is for your child, right? And if yeah. there's a gap there, well, how do you negotiate the gap? Or if you're expecting increasingly as they get older for them to be stronger self-advocates that they're trying to doggy paddle and they're struggling and it's becoming too much and they need additional support, 
How do they ask you for that? Uh, we often take for granted that uh, if a child um, needs you, they'll just ask for help because they know already. And as they grow, especially when they're younger, there are all of these ways that they literally needed you and had to ask for help for certain things to happen. Well, as we know, as students get older, that that's not that's true in the same way. And what I find so often is that parents and guardians and teachers and school staff, so many adults in the lives of youth don't normalize what help-seeking behaviors look like. What does that feel like? What does that look like? And really helping them see it or role-playing that a little bit. And I know that it sounds silly and I can hear some uh, people listening thinking like, role-play, what? My kid would never do that. They'll be so over it. And I understand that and I get that. Um, and it may fail at first, right? It like with all the things that we're talking about, we're talking about shifting household culture, shifting uh, relational norms. Nothing about shifting relational norms are super easy because if they were, everybody'd be doing it, right? right? And that's just yeah. simply not the case. But it is taking those incremental steps towards uh, creating new norms um, and really uh, establishing ways of being and ways of showing up that may be uncomfortable at first, but overall are to the long-term good. I love that. And I have, I have like five follow-up questions, but we're going to take a really quick break first and we'll come right back. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Okay, so let's go back to the role playing because I absolutely adore role playing. I now, granted, I do work with the younger side of children. You know, zero to ten is kind of my sweet spot, but um, but I love role playing, and I make my nine year old role play all the time. So she'll come home from school and she'll say mm -hmm. she's third grade, and she'll say I had a problem with a student today. You know, and something probably just you know something that happened. Someone didn't want to play with her, and she felt left out, or whatever the case was. Um. And so I'll tell her, you know, she'll say, how do I respond or how can I fix this? What, what am I supposed to do tomorrow when I go to school? And I'll say, well, let's role play a few things out. Like I'll yes. be your friend or sometimes I'll have her just talk to a stuffed animal on a chair or even an empty chair, right? Empty chair technique, love. Yeah, totally. it's, I love it. <laughs> I got to do a reel about that. It's like on my list of reels to do, but I haven't done it yet. So, um, but, you know, I'll have her sit down by, by herself in an empty chair or with a stuffed animal or even me. And I won't, like I said, I'll be more the listener, but I'll be the friend. And I'll say, well, okay, if you say that to her, how do you think she's going to respond? And then she'll have to think one step ahead of, well, she probably won't like it. She'll probably get even more mad or something. Mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, well, what's a different way you can respond? Anyway, so we go through this whole role-playing process. Mm -hmm. And she's only nine because mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much value in you know, thinking ahead of time and thinking there's five ways my friend can react by me saying this one thing, there's five ways she can react. You know, what, what kind of reaction do I want from her? Obviously, mm -hmm. ideally, you know, and what could happen and kind of what's my next step. So, um, so I, I wholeheartedly believe in the whole role-playing, you know, um, scenarios. I think it's great for, for couples to do. I think yes. it's great for parent-child to do. Um, it's just such a great way to, even for a, someone to talk to their boss. I mean, honestly, like I could go on and on about role-playing. So I'm glad that you also feel it, be, that it's valuable. <laughs> right? Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love um, it. Yes. 
So protected time is another um, highlight I wanted to just really focus on and spotlight for a minute. So I love that you use the word protected time. I've used different, you know, terms along the years too. And I've kind of, you know, I used to joke that, you know, Dr. Kim would prescribe, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes of, of me time with your child, you know, and I say, spend time with each of your children, you know, mm-hmm. and have your other caregiver, your partner spend time with your child in that way too. Um, no distractions, no phones, you know, just really have the time for for them, right? Um, Which in my world is usually revolved around play, you know, when they're little, have that play time with them. Um, But I really value what you're saying about protected time, especially in the teenage years, um, because there might be some times that a child does shut down different times of the week if they're super stressed about a test or let's say something's happening with one of their peers at school. But then they know, okay, every Friday night from 6 to 6.30 p.m., I get my time with my mom Mm -hmm. and that's when I can really just let loose. And if I want to cry or if I want to complain or if I just want to just have that time to talk with them, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be my space for, yes. you know, my my space that, that they can be held on to. So um, what are some ways, I guess I wanted to ask you, or what are some ways that parents can incorporate that into their day? Because I know it's hard sometimes to carve out some of that time, but it's mm-hmm. so important for our youth to have that protected time with our parent, to have conversations, to have that person to listen to us. Um, mm-hmm. But how can we actually do it? You know, how can we carve yeah. that into our day? How do you make it happen? What a question. And I know this is an obstacle for so many parents and guardians. Um, One, it's first a reflection on when are you at your worst? When are you least accessible or available emotionally? Um, You know, I've heard uh, parents and guardians talk about like, you know what, Uh, my child really turns up at night and I'm uh, half asleep, right? And I am not accessible in that way. So knowing like, when are you at your best? Um, and how can you leverage that time when you're at your best? I mean, this is when you're at your best. I mean, when are you uh, emotionally available? When are you present? Um, when can your child have a conversation with you uh, devoid of distraction? Um, and then how do you leverage that in a meaningful way? Um, some folks, that might be something that exists on a daily basis. For some folks, that might be something that only exists maybe one day a week. For some folks, it may only exist um, every couple of weeks, right, where you can really carve out that time. So you know you best. You know your lifestyle best. What's going to work for you? And then how do you... Uh, manage expectations. Uh, you want to communicate, uh, this is literally something that your child should know exists for the two of you. Um, you want to talk about how you expect that space to be used. Um, are you going to ask some check-ins about like how they're feeling emotionally? How are they feeling uh, physically? How is school? How is like, I mean, you can go in a lot of different directions, but what do you want to know? Um, if you show up expecting them just to share with you without really naming for them or setting level setting or setting any level of expectation or modeling for them how you would like them to show up, uh, then you're definitely setting yourself up uh, for failure. Um, so definitely set some expectations um, and then carve out that time. Uh, and I think, I, yet again, I said this before, it's going to be weird at first, especially if this not is not something uh, that you would normally do. Um, but give it some time. Um, at least give it five tries, five tries, three to five tries before you say, I have to abandon this. And this is something that I suggest to families. Uh, I, I first started suggesting it, particularly around post-secondary planning, because I know a youth gets so stressed out with their parents being on their backs and nagging them about, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you going? What are you doing? Um, so I've seen it work very well to create protected time to have those conversations. So it's not a never-ending conversation all the time. But I think just having that time to check in, and again, 
normalizing for your child, like this is a time if there is something going on, something that's really concerning you, something that's uh, upsetting you either in your life or maybe even something in our relationship, this is a time where I want us to be able to talk about it um, and then end on a note of affirmation, validation, um, and planning for when we're going to check in and when we're going to do this again. I like, and it's something that your child can look forward to also because they yes. know it's coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what happens to a, a parent, or what advice do you have for a parent that has a, a child, a, let's say a teenager, that has already shut down? They've already lost them. Um, they, maybe they don't have the best communication together. Um, you know, maybe they have heard too many lectures and too many nags, and the child is just like, "Leave me alone! I want nothing to do with you." Mm-hmm. And they've already shut down, and they're, they're they can't. That's they're having a hard time kind of knocking on the door and getting back in, right? And having yeah. to open the door again. Mm-hmm. Um, what are maybe some? I don't know. Um, nonverbal ways, or what are some mm-hmm. other ways that a parent might be able to try and connect and rebuild that relationship with their child mm-hmm. um, that may not actually be on a talking or even listening level? Is there anything a parent can do to keep that pulse on their children? Yeah. Um, well, one, uh, I let's think about uh, support as a system, right? Um, in the same way that at school, like, yes, I may be uh, my 300 plus students counselor, but I'm not the only support they have. They have uh, their parents and caregivers. They have their teachers. Um, they may have a peer mentor. They may have family members. So who are the other members of your team that can help you? Right, because if that com- if that communication shut down with you, that doesn't necessarily mean that that communication shut down in their lives, and there may be some other touch points that you can leverage or access. One, two, I think it's so important to have an honest conversation with your child about how you feel. I feel uh, isolated. I feel I'm sad that we are disconnected, or we're going through a period um, where things are tough for us. Um, and I would like to reconnect. Um, are there ways that I can re-engage you? Um, I think parents often skip the part of the oops, the ouch, um, I messed up, or I said I didn't mean to say that, or I didn't make. I, how did I make you feel? I didn't. I didn't mean to make you feel that way, but I acknowledge the impact that I did, even though I didn't mean to, and I'm sorry. How can we move forward together from this? Um, and then let's say worst case scenario, your child is still like, ew, go away. I'm like, okay, um, I am going to give you time and space. Uh, here's what that looks like. And here's when I'm going to check in again, right? And just being clear in I'm giving you space, but I'm not giving up for you. Um, and worst case scenario, I'm st- here are the ways when and if you need me how I would like you to show up, or here's what I would would expect, or here are some ways that you can't avoid me. In the same way where I talk to my students, it's like, yeah, you don't have to like me or enjoy me. However, there's certain things as your counselor that I'm going to be doing with you, and you're going to have to work with me on. And let's talk about how we manage those things, right? Um, but the, the honesty, the authentic uh, naming of uh, a desire to connect, um, and then what that space will look like moving forward. How are you giving them space? How are you going to connect again? Um, and asking them in earnest, uh, how can we reconnect and what can we both do uh, to prevent uh, what happened from happening again? Right. Now, do teenagers have answers? Because I feel like, you know, you'll, you'll talk to a lot of parents and they'll say, well, you know, I checked in with my child. And I love how you said you at least give it five times because mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll hear parents say, I tried it and it didn't work. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, mm-hmm. well, how many times did you try it? Mm-hmm. Once? Well, mm-hmm. okay, well, it may not work the first time, you know, mm-hmm. even the second time. Um, but, you know, they'll say, you know, I try to check with my child and they just said, oh, things are fine. 
we're good, you know, and they're still kind of, they're still shutting them out, you know, somehow. So I like yeah. how you keep showing up for them because I think eventually the, they will let you in, right? Because they know that you're not going away. And I feel like, you know, if you ask those open-ended questions and let them come up with the answers of, you know, how can I support you? What does that look like for you? And then let them come up with the answer instead of you deciding what you think mm-hmm. that it looks like, or maybe how mm-hmm. you were parented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you also said too. And I just want to touch on this real quick. So I know we're running out of time and I could talk forever, but um, on that same note is involving children in the decision-making, whatever mm-hmm. it is, whether it's to go to a party with their peers, whether it's to, you know, experiment with, like I said, like you were talking about earlier, when we were talking about alcohol <clears throat> and the work we do with prevention of that, but, you know, having them be part of it instead of, I think you had said something along the lines when we were in Chicago together, um, to, to involve their in the decision-making together instead of making the decision and then taking the action and they are left as the bystander. Will you go into a little bit more about what you mean by that and maybe yeah. how parents can be more aware of when they're choosing that for their kids instead of letting their kids choose? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a big part of uh, how I counsel. Um, I say this to the students all the time. You know what? Uh, you work with me for maybe four years during high school, okay? Um, the 14 years before you got to high school, I wasn't there. Um, so when it comes to who has expertise um, over your life and your experiences, between the two of us, that's definitely going to be you, student. Um, so I'm going to defer to you. Um, I think the same sort of logic can be used in the relationship um, between a parent and caregiver and a, and a child. Um, you know what? You live as you all day, every day, right? And the majority of your day is outside of the home when I'm not there right? Um, So you have expertise and perspective on your lived experience in ways that I can never understand because I've only ever been me, right? Um, So with that being said, uh, if if there's a decision that needs to be made, let's say it's healthy decision-making or going to a party, for example, well, let's talk about pros. Like, let's talk about pros. Let's talk about why this is important to you. Um, Let's talk about concerns. What concerns do you have? Here are concerns that I have, okay? Um, And then Let's negotiate, all right, with what we know and what we've shared. What what meaning do we make of this information, and then how do we move forward? And I think that is a, a really wonderful collaborative process because it leads to empowerment. It's not just uh, dictating to them what is or is not okay, um, and it's again creating space for them to share openly what they feel and what they think. And the more that we can do that, even if in the end you are making the decision or you don't agree in the final decision that's made. At least you created space for them to meaningfully be heard, even if they don't in the end get what they want. Yeah. And I think that goes along with what you were saying or also about giving them the opportunity to take healthy risks, even Mm -hmm. if they fail or learn difficult lessons. So even if they decide in that decision-making process and they decide this is what I'm going to do and they end up doing it, Mm -hmm. even though you know it's not going to turn out well and they come home after school Mm -hmm. crying on your shoulder because- it didn't work out. And, you know, instead of saying, I told you so, right, which, you know, we, we hopefully will not do, um, you know, but allowing them, even though it's so hard to see your child in pain, like I know when my kids come home from a bad day or something bad happened and I think, oh, I could have prevented that or I could have helped that before that happened because you don't want to see them hurt. You don't want to see them in pain. But I feel like to a certain extent to what you were saying is that, you almost, they almost have to learn, you know, mm-hmm. how to, how to make those decisions and to live with the decisions that they make, mm-hmm. um, as, as part of just a, a, like a life skills process. Right. I mean, yeah. it's hard, it's but life it has skill. to be done. 
It, it has to be done. And it's not only the life skill for the youth. I'm reframing this as a life skill for the parent or caregiver. It is a life skill to have children, uh, to love them deeply, to want to protect them in every way that you can and watch them struggle. You have to cope with that discomfort. And coping, like at a, on a fundamental level, what we're talking about for parents and guardians is how do you cope with the discomfort of watching your child struggle, knowing that they're making a bad decision, knowing that them learning and growing is so important? How do we normalize failure, not just for the children, but for the adult too? Because that is a skill for everyone involved. Wow. Well, on that note, you are just a genius when it comes to this stuff. I mean, I'm serious. You really are a unicorn counselor. I mean it. Um, where can where can people find you, follow you on online or maybe get more advice from, from you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have the Candid Counselors podcast where we talk about a lot of different ways of normalizing counseling skills and ways that we can support our youth um, and each other. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Brian Coleman. Well, Brian, thank you again so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom with us. And I know there's a lot of parents out there that are just applauding you right now and saying thank you for all the work that you do um, and how you've helped them too. So thanks again. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first. Then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com.